Dear Father, we just ask that today and during this year, as we talk about you, and specifically as we consider what you are like, as we try to understand your character, um, none of us have a perfect knowledge of that, but please lead us on a journey that is closer to your heart, mind, and character. All right, so these are some, uh, some modest proposals here, how to read and how not to read the Old Testament. Okay, it's maybe a little dangerous to give this lecture because during the last year or two, we've done a lot of footwork trying to lay the groundwork for some of these claims that I'll make in this lecture, but uh, we'll have a better chance here over the, the course of going through the rest of the Old Testament this year um, to discuss some of these things. So first of all, uh, where are we right now? Now, unless we have many third and fourth year medical students, none of you were here when we started this current trip uh, through the Bible which began two years ago. And of course, you all know how the Bible opens. A creation story, Adam and Eve. And uh, you know, most of you know it's just kind of a cascade downhill as we go through the Bible. Things look fine in creation week. Well, there is that serpent in the tree, so a little bit of a question what's going on there. But pretty soon, in just a few chapters, we reach the flood, and we're told that there's only one good person left, only one person that trusts God. And it would seem that that would be literally true because only one person in his family got on the boat. You'd think if God had a lot of trusting friends that a lot of people would have crowded into that boat, but it was only Noah and his family. And even after the flood, you know, it's still a little bit discouraging. We have the Tower of Babel, and then finally God finds a friend in Abraham. But it's interesting, when you, when you take the whole Bible and you pick these little tidbits here and there. And this verse in Joshua is a little surprising. You wouldn't expect to find something about Abraham and his family in Joshua. But we read this. This is uh, Joshua giving his last sermon. And he said, long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river. And what were they doing? And worshiped other gods. Okay, we kind of maybe have this uh, picture that this line of truth was perfectly carried down to Noah and to his descendants and then finally down to Abraham. But here we have a description of even Abraham's family worshiping other gods. Okay, But then, of course, Abraham responded to God, and we have a lot of good stories that, that came out of that. All right, and so, um, of course, we talked about Abraham, the Exodus, and then a, a long period of time here into until finally we get into Canaan. And, of course, the book of Joshua and Judges fit in there. And this is about where we picked up a year ago, for the second-year medical students, we started with 1 Samuel, who was, of course, a judge. Okay, and so we then get into the three kings. We spent a long time talking about Saul, David and the Psalms, Solomon, Ecclesiastes, all the books uh, that are related to Solomon. And then we really just picked up on the story. Because, of course, you know, after Solomon, uh, his son Rehoboam, who was very foolish, uh, didn't want to lower taxes and got into all kinds of problems, and we have the, the splitting of the kingdom. And so we have these two parallel kingdoms here, Judah and Benjamin, and then the ten northern tribes. And if we just look through the different kings, every single one of the kings of Israel, bad. Very, we can't really say anything positive, yeah, really bad about these kings here. And, uh, but we have a few kings Um, a few kings here uh, in Judah that did some good things, but not very many. And so the chronologic approach here uh, to this is to consider the prophets during the time when they gave their message. And I think that was helpful to understand 
Where do Elijah and Elisha fit in specifically? Jonah, who was really a prophet to the enemy, went to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. Uh, we have Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah. We went through all of these last year. And of course, leading up to this roughly 200-year period of time, 722 B.C., which of course, what happened there? The Assyrian captivity. Okay, and so these 10 northern tribes are just lost forever in the Assyrian captivity. Okay, and we read probably the most telling verse on this in Hosea, where God, as his people are going into captivity, says, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? Okay, but after 722, we have uh, what is left is Judah and Benjamin. Okay, and so we start out here with wicked king Manasseh. And again, a relatively short period of time here to 586 B.C. where we get into the uh, Babylonian captivity. So this is where next week our Bible study will pick up chronologically. Um, Some of you might remember we did a couple smaller books in here towards the end of last school year. We did Nahum and Habakkuk. And so uh, I think what we'll do is we'll start with Jeremiah. Now there were three invasions by the Babylonians. Uh, Daniel was taken out in the first invasion, Ezekiel in the second, and then Jeremiah in the third. But we'll start with Jeremiah just because um, his story is really the best for understanding this entire period of time. And then we'll do Ezekiel, and then we'll finish with Daniel because Daniel is the best book to understand uh, what happened after the Babylonian captivity with the Medes and the Persians and all of that. Okay, so we'll spend a fair amount of time on these three books. And I believe we will get through the rest of the Old Testament this year and into the New Testament. So what we'll be covering after that, okay, is, of course, Cyrus had the decree for the people to return to Jerusalem, okay, and this is where the books Haggai and Zechariah fit in, okay, and then later on, Esther, book of Esther describes the people who chose not to return to Jerusalem, okay, so we want to put that in in that context, and then finally, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, and then we're into the New Testament. Okay, so uh, first, just to discuss some some basic things about the Old Testament. Now, first of all, I I really wish uh, my wife Dorothy and I used to do this in our home with medical students back in 2003, and it was really a great, uh, you know, discussion format Uh, with a group this size and trying to meaningfully get through large portions of the Bible in a one-year period of time. Um, you know, we might get through three books this year if we're just going to, you know, discuss this with all of you. Now, there will be time. I will ask some questions. We will have some discussion. But I thought I'd try something different this year. Um, here's a better email address for reaching me than the lou.edu. That mailbox fills up quickly. But um, if, as we're discussing things, if you have questions, um, disagree. I'm fine with that. Um, and especially if I'm getting emails that seem to run along the same theme, I thought we might start out every Bible study maybe spending 10 minutes discussing something that wasn't clear. And uh, I'm, I appreciate the harder questions, the better. That doesn't mean trivia, but especially big picture kinds of questions. We want to grapple with those. And uh, I will respect your uh, anonymity and not uh, if you choose. So anyway, if you want to email me some questions, we might try to spend some time dealing with things that are more challenging. Okay, so Bible study in the 21st century. Is this really relevant? And of course, lots of challenges from science and lots of popular figures in the media, books written like this one, God is not great, okay, all kinds of things that, uh, you know, would suggest this is kind of, um, yeah, not that relevant, a little archaic to be spending time, especially in the Old Testament, 
Okay, what do we hope to get out of this? And I always have to read these quotes, um, especially when we're dealing with the Old Testament. And I suspect many of you here, um, in fact, I think we all should find challenges with the Old Testament stories. Mark Twain kind of amplifies this, so I'll, I'll read a good quote of his. And he would say, our Bible reveals to us the character of our God. Now, if I could just stop there, that would be my thesis for this Bible study. Yes, the Bible primarily reveals the character of our God. Okay, but this is how Mark Twain read the Bible. With minute and remorseless exactness. It is perhaps the most damnatory biography that exists in print anywhere. It makes Nero, if you remember Nero, an angel of light by contrast. To trust the God of the Bible is to trust an irascible, vindictive, fierce, and ever fickle and changeful master. Okay, and, and a lot of people, those Old Testament stories, man, those are powerful images. Okay, how do we put that together? Richard Dawkins. Okay, I always have to practice reading this incredible quote of his here because it's quite a mouthful, but this is what he had to say about the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So, good, I made it. That's a mouthful there, but man, that's, uh, again, a lot of people have uh, just very strong reactions. In fact, I would say atheism is in many ways a strong response against a certain version of Christianity. And Bill Mayer, this is a big question we'll spend a lot of time with during this Bible study. And it's a very basic, important question. Well, why doesn't God just obliterate the devil and therefore get rid of evil in the world? Okay, we claim to worship an all-powerful, all-loving God. If God has all the power, why does he have an enemy? How could he tolerate that? Why doesn't he just wipe Satan out? Why doesn't he do more about evil? Okay, this is a, a fundamental challenge. And uh, when you consider the things going on in the world, just, you know, the picture here, when you're just starving children, and God has the power, okay, I think... Uh, this will be one of our biggest topics as we go through the Old Testament. There'll be many opportunities to address this. Lots of websites. Uh, I actually really like this website. There's some interesting um, things to think about here. The Thinking Atheist. Just, uh, you know, 9-11, where was God? Uh, suffering in the world, science. And so many challenges to uh, a biblical view. Many challenges to Christianity. And finally, I'll just conclude with this one, Watson and Crick of uh, DNA. Crick would say, the God hypothesis is rather discredited. People like myself get along perfectly well with no religious views. And Watson would say, every time you understand something, religion becomes less likely. Religion is a myth from the past. All right. So th this echoes you know, the, the mindset for many. And these are some of the things that we'll discuss. Is the Bible really re relevant? Is the Old Testament relevant in the 21st century? Well, um, here will be the basic theme that we're going to try to follow uh, during this year. And we're going to have a concentrated single question that will lead us to branch out in many different areas, but it will focus um, on this basic subject. And this is the night before Jesus died, and he's with his disciples in the upper room, and he said to them, this is eternal life. And just kind of as a knee-jerk, if you're going to finish this, uh, what is eternal life? 
would you answer it in terms of a length of time? I think that's how most would answer it. Well, living forever, pretty obvious. Hey, but notice how Jesus defined eternal life. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. On earth I have given you glory by finishing the work you gave me to do. Okay, what was the work that Jesus came to do? I made your name known to the people you gave me. Now, name in the Bible has a much bigger meaning than we associate with it today, which is the name of the individual. Name encompasses the whole person, the character. And so the Message Bible translates this, or paraphrase, as I, I revealed your character. Okay, so uh, this may seem like a big claim. I mean, you know, who are we to say anything about God's character? God is too big. We can't even approach that subject. But yet if we have Jesus saying, this is it, to know you, and I came to reveal God's character, well, that's an invitation to take this subject very seriously, to suggest that there are things that we can explore and put our finger on and you know, be very specific about God's character. Uh, just one other verse here, John 1. Okay, incredible description here. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has made God known. So Jesus' purpose in coming into this world in this verse was to reveal God to us. And uh, we read last year how many times this, this conception of knowing God, that's not just made up here. This is through the Old Testament, again and again. Okay, so uh, that's going to be our focus. What can we say about God's character? And the biggest challenges to that are certainly in the Old Testament. Okay, so let's just go through a few guidelines, some things that, uh, that have been helpful to me and uh, I think we want to kind of have somewhat of a framework when we're thinking about the Old Testament. Um, first would certainly be context. Context is everything. If we're trying to uh, interpret passages of Scripture, I'm not sure, I don't know who to give credit for this quote, but I really like it. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Okay, we can't just pluck a verse out and use that. I mean, we've got to read all the way around it. We actually need to read the whole Bible to understand each little part. We can't take a little bit here and a little bit there. Um, it was several years ago that we were in a church and the, the verse of the day in the bulletin was a verse from Job. Okay, and so I got my Bible out, looked it up, and it was one of uh, Job's, quotes friends. Okay, and what did God say at the end of the book of Job? You've not said the truth about me to the three friends. Okay, it's verse, it's in the Bible. Okay, but it's taken out of context. It's one of the people that, that lied. Okay, that's actually a pretty good verse, but anyway, we have to be, be careful. Now, uh, I saw this uh, just a few weeks ago. I had to drive out to Los Angeles, and there were all these people standing on the street corner, and I don't even know, I meant to look on the internet later to find out what this was all about, but a number of them were, were holding this sign. And uh, I couldn't find it on the internet, but to the, one of the individuals holding this sign was not quoting Malachi, but was quoting... Uh, Leviticus. And uh, not to be critical, but uh, this individual holding the sign was uh, quite overweight. And uh, the, the thought has occurred to me about this that, you know, in the books of Moses here, yes, we do find some, you know, you could pluck something out and you could hold up a sign like this. But there are also words in the books of Moses that, that the gluttonous children should be stoned. Okay, so 
uh, is it rather selective here? Well, we like this one, but uh, I haven't seen anyone holding up signs about overweight people. You know, so we, we tend to pick and choose what uh, what we want to believe very often in the Bible. Someone is uh, as a counter to that. Jesus cursed the fig tree, so God <laughs> hates figs. As kind of a as a joke there. But that again, of course, would be an out of context kind of approach to interpreting the Bible. Okay. We need context not only with the key little verses, but we need context for the stories. I'll just give one example here. Uh, Mount Sinai, this is a, a terrifying manifestation. God comes down on the mountain. And you don't have much time as a medical student, so let's just imagine uh, you're going to bed, you've got time maybe for one chapter, and you're in Exodus. So you read Exodus 19 okay, for something uplifting uh, right before you go to sleep. And here's the description of God coming down on Mount Sinai. The Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will believe you from now on. Go to the people and tell them to spend today and tomorrow purifying themselves for worship. They must wash their clothes and be ready the day after tomorrow. On that day, I will come down on Mount Sinai where all the people can see me. Mark a boundary around the mountain that the people must not cross and tell them not to go up to the mountain or even get near it. If any of you set foot on it, you are to be put to death. You must either be stoned or shot with arrows without anyone touching you. This applies to both people and animals to keep the animals away from the mountain. They must be put to death. But when the trumpet is blown, then the people are to go up to the mountain. And then Moses came down the mountain and told the people to get ready for worship. So they washed their clothes and Moses told them, be ready by the day after tomorrow and don't have sexual intercourse in the meantime. It's very serious. On the morning of the third day, There was thunder and lightning. A thick cloud appeared on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast was heard. All the people in the camp trembled with fear. Moses led them out to the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had come down on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and all the people trembled violently. Just try to imagine this scene. The sound of the trumpet became louder and louder, and Moses spoke. And God answered him with thunder, and the Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. Now, this is a rather maybe scary picture of God coming down. His children are shaking in their boots here on Mount Sinai. Okay, but um, again, we want to put this in context. Okay, what is the context? Well, let's just back up and remind ourselves this short little journey out to Mount Sinai. Uh, was this a pleasant trip out there? Just lots of singing and rejoicing and lots of trust in God? Uh, no, I'm going to just read. I don't need to prove this to you, but I'll just read a couple of passages where the people said, weren't there any graves in Egypt? Did you have to bring us out here in the desert to die? Look at what you have done by bringing us out of Egypt. And again, we wish that the Lord had killed us in Egypt. There we could at least sit down and eat meat. You have brought us into this desert to starve us all to death. So the context is, this is a rebellious group of people coming out to Mount Sinai, okay? And so, you know, that's helpful. God here maybe has to come in a certain way to meet a rebellious group of people. And the very first part of the passage here that I read to you, the Lord said to Moses, I will come down in a thick cloud. Why? So that the people will hear me speaking with you and will believe you from now on. Okay, Moses' authority was challenged again and again and again and again. And remember what happened. The people are afraid, and they literally pushed Moses forward, and they said, you go talk to God. We don't want to come anywhere close. And so if you just imagine here, Moses, 
intercedes between God and the people, wouldn't that elevate his status a little bit? Wouldn't that make Moses a little more uh, trustworthy in the minds of the people? Okay, and so God maybe had to do this for a reason to fit a certain time and context. Okay, otherwise we, we may come to some false conclusions. And it would be a fair question to ask, um, did God overdo it? You know, if he came to Loma Linda and shook the mountains back here and, you know, everything was on fire and, uh, you know, would we attend church a little more regularly? Would, would we obey a little bit better? Yeah, you would think we'd, uh, obedience would, would really pick up. But what happened 40 days later? Of course, they're dancing drunk around a golden calf, okay, which would suggest these really were a hardened people and that God didn't go too far in his manifestation there at Mount Sinai. It would be very dramatic on that occasion. Okay, and I love this verse in Hosea. The people of Israel are as stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? Okay, the Old Testament is written essentially to people who are stubborn mules. Okay, and when you're dealing with a stubborn mule, you need to use certain methods to reach a stubborn mule. Okay, and so that, that's just the way it is. I mean, if, um, you know, this medical student class, let's just imagine that... Um, there was a drug use in the back row going on, and that occasionally medical students murdered each other, and that there were all kinds of horrible things going on. You know, there would, uh, as a teacher, I would need to use some methods that uh, might surprise you. We would have some very strict ground rules, and um, you know, I think even of you who were loyal and good students, uh, you may not find me as likable under those uh, situations because of the way methods I'd have to use to to reach certain people. And I think that's the issue. God took a big risk in the Old Testament again and again and again with his reputation. Okay, so uh, point number two, God meets people where they are. Now, I think we would all agree with that, but if you really take in the full ramifications of that statement, um, that that can challenge many things that we might hold to about um, inspiration and a number of things. Let me give you some examples. Here in Exodus, if a man takes a second wife, he must, no, hold on, if a man takes a second wife, okay, why doesn't it start out, you may not take a second wife, okay, but instead, if a man takes a second wife, he must continue to give his first wife the same amount of food and clothing and the same rights that she had before, okay, would we like to apply this today and read this, those of us who are married, well, if I take a second wife, I have permission in the Bible to do that. I just have to give you the same rights that you had before. Um, again, an understanding of the Bible as every verse is on the same level of uh, truth, well, we'd have a problem with verses like this. We need to see truth, our understanding of truth, unfolding in the Bible, and that this is for a certain time and culture. And of course, we just think of the heroes of faith, Abraham, David, Solomon. It wasn't that God liked polygamy. Uh, when we went through Deuteronomy, uh, you know, God said, in the future, you're going to choose to have a king. And it's a terrible idea, but you're going to do it anyway. And the king should not have many wives. And it detailed all these things. The king is not to have a big army. And make sure the king reads this book. Because if he reads this book, he'll remember not to have many wives. Okay, so God clearly was not for this. But if we can understand this as even being a step in the right direction, because what was done back then is... You know, you have one wife, you don't like her so much, you take another, you treat the first one very cruelly or just get rid of her. So this was a step in the right direction. If, if you're going to do that, okay, it's light years from the ideal, but if you're going to do that, 
you have to give your first wife the same rights and, and so on. So it's a, a, perhaps a very small step in the right direction. Hey, here's another one that is just challenged to uh, many of us. If there's a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So what do we do with the eye for an eye language here? Should we, uh, as Christians, is that, is that the way we're going to treat people, eye for an eye? Again, if we're not looking at the context, this really makes God look horrible. What was the context? It was, boy, if you did something to me, I not only got you back to the same degree, but on top of that. You know, you pinch me, I punch you, you hit me with a hammer, and it, it escalates. Okay? So um, here, this is, no, it's eye for eye. It actually is an improvement on their system of justice for that time. And of course, what did Jesus come along and do? No longer eye for an eye. Okay, he was pushing people, uh, again, closer to uh, what is really truth. So we see this very darkly here. Okay, and speaking of Jesus, here is just the most wonderful passage, I think, for understanding half of the difficulties we're going to have in the Old Testament. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? And the reason it is a trap is Jesus said something about divorce that seemed to contradict what Moses told them about divorce. So they think they've got him. And Jesus said, haven't you read the scriptures? Of course they had. That's why they're coming to him with this question. And Jesus said, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Okay, now here's the question. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? We've got it. We can point to the verse right here in the Old Testament. Okay, what are you going to do with that? And just, just take in Jesus' response. It's really key. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. So half, I don't know what percentage, but much of the Old Testament is a concession to the hard hearts of the people in that time. It's not the ideal. Okay, it's God meeting people where they are and trying to bring them to something much, much better, a concession. Okay, if we don't read the Old Testament in that light, I think we come to some false conclusions about uh, who our God is. Now, maybe even more challenging, we assume that the New Testament, anything, the New Testament, Old Testament stuff, New Testament, here we get it all you know, perfectly straight. There's nothing that's a little dark and hazy in the New Testament. Well, uh, what do we do with this passage? First Corinthians, the women should keep quiet in the meetings. They are not allowed to speak, as the Jewish law says. They must not be in charge. If they want to find out something, they should ask their husbands at home. It is a disgraceful thing for a woman to speak in a church meeting. Okay, um, Shouldn't we do what the Bible says? And what do we do with this verse? We, again, we have to take in the context. Okay, And when you read uh, the book here of Corinthians, you read about a church that is uh, chaotic. Okay, And uh, paganism is everywhere, worship of false gods. We have the Temple Apollo, where what the function of women in that time was as temple prostitutes. Okay, That's how women were involved in a church service. Um, you have a a man who's sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul would talk about people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And so this is the context 
Okay, and Paul has to be very harsh in the book of Corinthians. Okay, so again, this is, this is still a challenging verse, but at least we have to put it, that's the context, those are the people that Paul is dealing with in that time. Okay, so I mentioned this already, but our third uh, suggested guideline here is that truth is progressively unfolded in the Bible. Okay, let me give some examples. We talked about eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and I mentioned that we, we have to take this position, that truth is progressively unfolded, because we have eye for an eye in the Old Testament, and Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but now I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. Okay, he did away with that. Yes, there was a time for that. It met people in a certain time. Okay, but now those of us that call ourselves Christians, okay, no, Jesus calls us to something better than that. It's progressively unfolded. Now, that's good news and bad news, though. It's good news because if we're troubled by verses like this in the Old Testament, um, Jesus so often clears these things up, and it's wonderful. But it's, it's very challenging because um, Jesus very much uh, rocks our paradigms and pushes us sometimes into directions that we don't want to go. And so he would say, you've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies, but now I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, so this is a, not just one verse, this is a repeated theme of Jesus. So again, we call ourselves Christians, this has to be, I mean, we've got this from Jesus again and again and again, love your enemies, pray for them. If the Roman soldiers force you to carry their pack one mile, carry it two miles. Okay, are Christians known for applying these repeated words of Jesus? Um, unfortunately, not very often. I think that's why uh, we don't sometimes have a very good reputation in the world. But Jesus is moving us in a direction that uh, maybe we, we're not comfortable with, okay? But, but that's, that's clearly closer to the ideal. Now, kind of a, a sub-note here about uh, truth progressively unfolded, that we need to read the Bible with a willingness to be surprised and a willingness to change. Now, I realize looking back that, um, you know, when I read the Bible when I was younger, my mindset reading the Bible was primarily to try to confirm what I already believed to be true. Okay, so I'm looking for things that support my paradigm. Things that don't, I was going to kind of push that off to the side. Okay, none of us have an absolute understanding of truth. We all need to go through this process, but we need to be willing to change a cherished position. Okay, and this is to remind me to tell a story here. Um, I heard that um, once a man asked his pastor, he was very troubled by many passages in the Bible, and he said, what do you do with all these difficult verses? And the pastor's response was to say, well, reading the Bible is like eating fish. Okay, you eat the meat and you push the bones off to the side of the plate. Now, I'm going to disagree with that approach, though, because I mean, what happens if most of your plate is bones? Okay, and we, we really need to take everything. In fact, I found the most difficult, challenging parts of the Bible, once understood, are some of the most rewarding passages. So that's why I'm encouraging all of you, let, let's tackle the most difficult things. Let's see if we can put it all together as much as possible. Okay, a fourth point, and I wish we had more time this morning to talk about this, but incredibly important to me in, in putting together a picture of who God is, is to recognize that God has an enemy. Okay, And of course, in the perfection of Eden, there was that serpent in the tree. And wouldn't that kind of be an invitation to understand what's he doing there? Does that mean something was going on before the creation of our world? And just very quickly, even the, the first few verses in the Bible 
are somewhat suggestive of this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Tohu, bohu. Formless and void. And darkness is over the, the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light. Does this just mean, we just described literally it was dark, formless and void. Well, there are only two times uh, in the Old Testament where this formless and void is used. And uh, the, this tohu, formless, means uh, literally a worthless thing, a, a desert, chaos, confusion, an empty place. And uh, bohu is an undistinguishable ruin. And these two other times it's used in the Old Testament, it is referring to a deep spiritual darkness and chaos. Uh, just very quickly, the one time here in Jeremiah where God describes his people before they go into captivity and says, they do not know me. And my eternal life is to know God. But then their description, they are like foolish children. They have no understanding. They are experts at doing what is evil, but failures at doing what is good. I looked at the earth. It was a barren waste, tohu bohu. At the sky, there was no light. So it's the same thing. Okay, uh, Formless void, there was no light. I looked at the mountains, they were shaking, the hills were rocking back and forth. Okay, Were they really shaking, rocking back and forth? Well, this is a kind of a symbolic language here, but here this is describing um, something different than a, a literal uh, darkness. It's describing a, really a spiritual darkness. Okay, And so many have um, kind of picked up on this theme even from the first few verses in Genesis. Greg Boyd, in his book, God at War, would say there are several aspects of the Genesis narrative that indicate that while the creation of Genesis 1 is good, it is set in the context of a broader environment that is not altogether good. Okay, And so incorporating that is helpful. And just one other um, Old Testament scholar here said on this tohu vabohu, the force that this represents the forces that oppose Yahweh and his acts of creation, the forces of disorder, injustice, affliction, and chaos, which are in the Israelite worldview, one. Okay, and so we have formless and void and darkness, and the word here for darkness means misery, destruction, death, ignorance, sorrow, wickedness. And if we look at other times where this is used, here in the Old Testament, okay, this is uh, from the Net Bible footnotes, it symbolizes things opposed to God. Okay, so uh, I think it's, it's trying to paint a bigger picture of perhaps what was going on when our world was created. And then we don't find out about all this until we get to Revelation, where now we read about war broke out in heaven. Okay, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, who fought back with his angels, but the dragon was defeated, and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. That huge dragon was thrown out. That ancient serpent, now isn't who else could that be wanting us to think back to? The opening of Genesis, the ancient serpent. And if we're still not sure, who's the ancient serpent? Name the devil. If we're still not sure, or Satan, that deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with them. I think if we're trying to understand why our world is the way it is, we we have to bring in this this cosmic conflict. Okay, and it's all the way through the New Testament. Okay, Satan is somewhat veiled in the Old Testament, but Jesus twice called him the prince of this world. Okay, and even after the cross, Paul would refer to him as the god of this age, the ruler of the kingdoms of the air. And John would say the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Okay, so it's, it's a helpful, very helpful worldview. And so coming back to this website, when 9-11 happened, boy, I remember there were so many talk shows and people were asking, where was God? And uh, the one answer 
or not that this is the answer, but one thing I never heard brought up in this context is, you know, the existence of Satan, the prince of this world, and some demonic involvement in many of the evil things that happen in our world. Satan doesn't get much press. Okay, and the last point here, and I think this is the, the main purpose of the Bible, is that the Bible should be read primarily as a story, and it's a story about God. Okay, the other approach is to read the Bible primarily as we're trying to distill doctrines. We're just trying to get the list. Okay, but 80% of the Bible is a story, should be read as a story. Okay, it, it would be very nice, uh, we might think, just to have a list. could be two pages. Okay, wouldn't it be kind of nice if we just had the words of God, this is what I require, believe this, here we go. How many points would there be? Maybe 10, I don't know. Do this, signed God. And we just had, they're very authoritative. We wouldn't have to get together all the time to read through lists of genealogies and all that. We just have it straightforward. Okay, why isn't it that way? Well, uh, let me give uh, just one example. Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he asked a question. You'd think if we're making a list of doctrines, this would be the time to get out our, our pen. And point number one, and he said, teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? Okay, isn't that what we want to know? We're making a list of doctrines. We're going to get it straight from Jesus. Okay, you'd think this would be, boy, as authoritative as you can possibly be. Here's Jesus' answer. He said to him, if you want to enter into life, obey the commandments. Okay, is that the answer you'd give someone? Well, keep the law, obey the commandments. And of course, the man wasn't uh, entirely satisfied. Well, he felt pretty good about himself, thought he was keeping the commandments. So he pushed Jesus a little bit. And then Jesus said, well, there is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. So if we're making a list for getting to heaven, if we're reading the passage in that way, number one would be keep the law. Number two, sell everything and give to the poor. And number three, then come and follow Jesus. And this story kind of illustrates what we're talking about. We've got to understand the context, okay, and the, the setting. Why did Jesus respond in this way? Remember, what was Jesus dealing with? It was legalism. You know, you get to heaven, you keep the law. And if you're rich, it's evidence that God has blessed you. So this man felt pretty good about himself. So he's dealing with a very legalistic culture, and so what does he do? He essentially out-legalizes a legalist. He says, okay, you want to play this game? All right, keep the law. The man says, okay, I've done that. And so Jesus makes it even harder. All right, sell everything you have, give to the poor. Now let's just imagine the man had done that. And he comes back and says, all right, gave it all away to the poor. And uh, you know, maybe Jesus would say, well, you're still playing this game. huh? Well, love your enemy. Carry the Roman pack an extra mile. And uh, he's... He's trying to shatter this paradigm. And so the Bible is a story because we have many paradigms that need to be shattered. And we can't just get it in a little list. Okay, We need to grapple with these stories and they need to reshape uh, the way that we, we view uh, truth. Okay, so as a little, uh, well, this shouldn't be, this is the main point here. The climax of the story is Jesus. If we're reading the Old Testament and we're not putting Jesus at front and center, uh, again, we're going to be lost in most of the Bible. The climax is Jesus. We need to elevate Jesus as high as we can as um, the, the climax of truth and everything. And in fact, a good rule of thumb here is that we're reading through the Old Testament and we're coming to things that seem entirely inconsistent with God as Jesus revealed him to be. 
That's an invitation. Okay, let's, let's think about this a little bit longer. Let's spend a little more time. So I'll conclude uh, with this. Jesus told these people, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. Okay, well, don't we? And he said, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. Okay, so the life of Jesus, the cross, that has to totally permeate our understanding um, of the Bible. They're all about Jesus. They're all meant to build up to Jesus. And so, um, again, the very end of Jesus' life, one of his disciples, Philip, asked the question. Perhaps we'd like to ask, Lord, show us the Father. That will satisfy us. In other words, you know that God of the Old Testament, the one who did all those things. I mean, we, we, we love you, Jesus, but can you show us him? Then we'll be satisfied. And his response, Jesus replied, I have been with all of you for a long time. Don't you know me yet, Philip? The person who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So in other words, the heart, mind, character of God, it is precisely as Jesus revealed him to be. They're one and the same. Okay, and so we need to elevate that picture of God's character, and then let's work on the other stories. Okay, so God, a God who became a baby, God who lived such a humble life, finally laid down his life, even for his enemies. Uh, that needs to be our picture of God, or at least let, let's try to move our picture of God in that direction. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you that you have given us the story of um, how you've interacted with your people, with all people in human history. Please help us to put the stories together in a better way, to understand what you're like, and to put our trust in you because of the revelation of your goodness in Jesus. Amen.